This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit kuiper.org to download this book or purchase a physical copy. The Politics of God and the Politics of Man Essays on Politics, Religion and Social Order by Stephen C. Perks Copyright 2016 Stephen C. Perks The Kuiper Foundation Taunton, England Section 1 Absolute Power and Authority In Matthew 28, 18-20, we are told that all power and authority have been committed to Jesus Christ. This is perhaps one of the most widely known, yet least understood statements in Scripture. Most Christians will immediately recognize it and be able to find it in the Bible. Yet, it is one of the most ignored teachings in Scripture. Whole theologies are built on the negation of this very teaching. For example, I heard some years ago a sermon preached at a Reformed church in which the preacher assured the congregation that the Christian warfare is a matter of the, quote, spiritual, end quote, life, that it is in the, quote, spiritual realm, end quote, that it is in the spiritual realm that we engage with principalities and powers and seek to stand for Christ and overcome evil by means of the gospel. The congregation was sternly warned not to get involved with, quote, organizations, end quote, and, quote, things happening in the world, end quote, because the faith has no relevance to such things. Rather, the Christian warfare relates to a, quote, spiritual, end quote, battle. Now, of course, it is true that the Christian's warfare is a spiritual battle, but this preacher had so defined what spirituality means that he had created a vast chasm between the world that we live in and a higher, quote, spiritual, end quote, realm that has no bearing on the everyday issues of life. Another evangelical reformed preacher I heard some years ago claimed that Christianity is primarily concerned not with this life, but with the world to come, that is, eternity. This kind of dualism is very common in the church, yet it is predicated on a complete contradiction of Christ's words in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, because here Christ says that all power in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Quote, Christianity, says Eugen Rosenstock Hussey, quote, is the greatest hoax of history unless it tells us about the temporal, end quote. Nothing in the whole of the created order lies beyond the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The nations of this world and their governments included, and in confirmation of this, the scriptures tell us, prophesying of Christ, quote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. End quote. Isaiah 9, 6-7 In the book of Revelation, this is confirmed. Quote, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. End quote. Revelation 11.15 And Christ commanded us to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 These are not obscure scriptures. They teach that the Lord Jesus Christ came to conquer the whole of the created order and redeem this lost world. Christ tells us plainly, quote, 
all authority has been given unto me, end quote. Likewise, Peter says that, quote, Christ is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him, end quote. 1 Peter 3.22 The Lord Jesus Christ is the only point in the whole of the created order where all power and authority are concentrated. No one else possesses such absolute power in the created order, in heaven or on earth. This power is not limited to the heavenly or spiritual realm. It is an authority that extends to everything and everyone on earth. It includes, therefore, all political authority. Because Christ is the only one in whom all power and authority in the whole cosmos is concentrated, all other legitimate powers, including all political powers, derive their authority in a delegated form from him. The authority of governments comes from Christ alone. It has to, because there is no other point in the created order where such authority could come from. Absolute power and authority in the created order has been given to Christ, and therefore, any authority exercised by anyone else in the created order must ultimately come in a delegated form from Christ and from him alone. All authority of governments, therefore, comes from God through Christ. Political authority does not come from the people, though this is not to deny the validity of representative governments, but we must get our first principles right. All political authority comes from Christ. Who may fill the office of civil ruler may legitimately be decided by popular elections, but the authority of the political ruler comes from God through Christ as the person in whom all authority in heaven and on earth is concentrated, and therefore such political authority must be exercised in accordance with his will as it is revealed in his law. Given the fact that Scripture so plainly teaches that absolute authority is given to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a matter of wonder that so many in the church should see Christ's authority as limited to the realm of the, quote, spiritual, end quote, and deem his commission to his disciples to bring all nations under his discipline as having little of any relevance to the world of human politics. Such an understanding of the Great Commission is, in truth, a negation of the Great Commission. However, the prosecution of Christ's authority in the political realm is only one aspect of the Great Commission, by no means all of it. Before we look in more detail at the political implications of the Great Commission, we need to look at how the Great Commission applies generally to the nations. Section 2. The Christian Doctrine of Social Order Christ commands us in the Great Commission to make all nations his disciples. In this command, the term, quote, all the nations, end quote, is the direct object of the verb to disciple. What Jesus does not do here is to tell us to go and make disciples from among or out of all the nations. He does not refer to the discipling of individual souls. What he says is that we are to disciple the nations. It is the nations that are to be the disciples of Christ, not merely individual souls, brands snatched from the fire. Of course, this inevitably means that individual souls must be converted to the Christian faith. There can be no discipling of the nations without the salvation of individual souls. But there is a difference between a command to 
disciple individual souls, and a command to disciple the nations. The latter includes the former, but the former does not include the latter. It is possible to disciple individual souls from all the nations without discipling the nations. It is not possible to disciple the nations without discipling individual souls. It is important to understand that Christ commanded us to disciple the nations, not merely to make disciples from among the nations. The discipling of the nations that Christ commands us to engage in involves the whole nation, individuals, communities and society at large, including all its institutions and forms of government. No sphere of life is left out. The whole nation must come under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ, must live under his law and thereby conform to his will. If we are to fulfill the Great Commission, we must understand that nothing less than this total transformation of society is necessary. The Great Commission is not merely a question of discipling individual souls to the Christian faith. And the faith that overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4, is more than a private devotional mystery cult and Sunday services. The Great Commission requires the transformation of the whole nation, the whole of society, and indeed the whole world. How is this to be achieved? What does a Christian social order look like? How is it structured? And how is its structure maintained? We know that Christ has all authority over everything, over all powers and subsidiary authorities, but how does his authority structure society? In the created order, Christ's authority is delegated, in a limited form, to several forms of government. But in none of these spheres or institutions is there a total delegation of Christ's authority. Christ delegates authority to each of these institutions or spheres, and the authority he delegates is specific to that sphere, that is, appropriate to it and limited to its functions. No single sphere or institution is given total authority. If it were, it would be equal in authority to Christ himself, that is, it would possess an authority equal to God's. Now, we shall see that, in the modern world, this is just what civil governments, states, are increasingly doing, that is, assuming total authority over society. But this is a form of idolatry, because it puts the state into the position of Christ, as the one in whom all authority is concentrated. The Christian must reject this and insist that all authority resides in Christ alone. He is the only point in the created order where all authority is concentrated. The Christian view of social order, therefore, must maintain that any delegated authority is limited and that its limits are defined by the law of Christ, the Word of God, the Bible. There is no single authority structure that uh, possesses total authority over the nation. Only the Lord Jesus Christ possesses such authority. How does this doctrine work out in practice? The diagram on page 132 sets out the basic structure of the Christian doctrine of social order and shows the relationship between 
the various authority structures, or spheres, within society. The Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all authority, in heaven and on earth, is concentrated, delegates authority, via his word or law, to each individual main sphere of life. There are four spheres here. These are the three institutions that are established in the Bible as the main forms of societal government, family, church and state, plus the sphere of individual liberty and self-government. Each of these institutions or spheres has a specific role or function and an authority appropriate to it. Each receives its authority from God's word, not from any of the other spheres or institutions. The spheres of family, church and state are the main social institutions. The limit of the power and authority of the state is the sword, that is, physical coercion, up to and including, where appropriate, the death penalty. This authority it has from God. But it is, like all delegated authority, only used legitimately where it is exercised in accordance with God's law. The limit of the power and authority of the family is the rod, and the limit of the power and authority of the church is excommunication. Again, this authority is only used legitimately where it is exercised in accordance with God's law. This does not mean that these powers define these institutions, but they show the limits of their authority. A family is much more than the parent's authority to chastise a child. But the authority to use the rod of correction sets the limits of the parent's authority. It shows us how far the father's authority extends, that is, this far and no further. The family, or the father, does not have the authority of the sword, that is, the father does not have the authority from God's word to execute his criminal offspring. A father must hand a criminal son over to the civil magistrate, the state, to be prosecuted and punished for his crimes. Deuteronomy 21, 18-21 The father's authority is permitted to go no further than the rod. This is in stark contrast to the Roman laws of the Twelve Tables, for example, which permitted the father to exercise absolute authority over his family and slaves granting him the right, as their judge, to kill those under his authority. The Bible denies this authority and power to the family. The family must hand a criminal son over to the state to be dealt with. Likewise, the state may apply the death sentence in certain cases, but that is the limit of the state's authority. The state does not have authority or power to excommunicate anyone nor may the state interfere with the family's legitimate exercise of authority. It may only act where crime, as defined by God's word, has been committed. The state may not, therefore, without illegitimately usurping the legitimate authority of the family, pass laws that ban the use of the rod in the physical punishment of children by their parents. In England, the state has now banned the use of a rod in the punishment of children by parents and there is an ongoing campaign to ban smacking in England also. Such law is illegitimate. It is unlawful law, in the sense that English law traditionally has been based on the Christian doctrine of the rule of law, 
which stipulates that all man-made law must conform to the higher law of God and to reason, which of course amounts to the same thing. The state may act where a crime has been committed, and therefore, if a parent commits grievous bodily harm against a child, the state may act, and rightly so. But the law already covers this, and there is no need for laws banning smacking and the use of the rod by parents. Such laws are a direct attack on the law of God and the social order it is meant to create and maintain. The church is also limited in her authority. She may not use coercion or physical punishment of any kind. The power of the church is limited by the act of excommunication. If a member of the church apostatizes from the faith and refuses to repent after due admonition, the maximum that the church may do is excommunicate the person, that is, refuse to accept him into the community of professing believers and deny him the privileges that belonging to that community confers. If he has committed crimes, the state must punish him, not the church. The church is required to excommunicate unrepentant sinners. If the criminal repents of his crime, the church must accept him into the fold, even if the state must execute him for his crimes. The medieval doctrine of benefit of clergy is therefore contrary to the biblical order and an abuse of the church's legitimate authority in which she usurps the authority and functions of the state. All such usurpation of authority, whether by the family, church or state, leads to tyranny in which one institution with a limited role in society and an authority appropriate to that role assumes the powers and authority of other God-ordained institutions. This inevitably means a loss of freedom. The modern state is the institution that now claims total authority over society and, in doing so, it plays the tyrant and takes away our liberty. But the Church has been as guilty in times past. The medieval Roman Catholic doctrines of the two swords and the direct power claimed that the Pope had been given both spiritual and temporal authority by Christ, and on the basis of this belief, the papacy sought to exercise dominion over the state. The doctrine of the two swords was based on an allegorical reading of Luke 22.38 that claimed that the two swords mentioned in the text represent spiritual and temporal authority, both of which have been entrusted to Peter and his successors. According to St. Bernard, therefore, quote, We are instructed by the words of the Gospel that two swords are in the power of Peter, the spiritual and the temporal. In fact, when the Apostle said, quote, There are two swords here, end quote, that is, in the church, the Lord did not reply, quote, That is too much, end quote, but, quote, That is enough, end quote. Certainly, he who denies that the temporal sword is in Peter's power forgets the Lord's words. Put back thy sword in its sheath. Both swords are thus in the power of the church, the material and the spiritual, but the former is wielded on behalf of the church, the latter by the church, the latter by the hand of the priest, the former by the hand of the king or knight, on the word, 
and with the consent of the priest, it is in fact needful that one sword should be below the other, and that the temporal authority should be subject to the spiritual power. End quote. According to Joseph Leckler, quote, In the eyes of believers in the direct power, the spiritual power includes the temporal. The one is no more than an emanation of the other. Christ, who is at once priest and king, has delegated to Peter and his successors the whole of his power. The Pope possesses, in principle, all jurisdiction in civil as well as in religious affairs. In feudal language, he has a direct right of, quote, eminent domain, end quote, over everything. And at the epoch, let us remember, quote, eminent domain, end quote, meant real ownership, end quote. The doctrines of the two swords and the direct power gave the church an absolute authority that was beyond her legitimate role from the biblical perspective. In the Christian doctrine of social order, each sphere is limited in the kind and degree of its authority, so that no single institution wields total authority. Christ alone reserves that right to himself. The Christian theory of social order maintains a balance or separation of powers that restricts the authority of any one institution. In each of these spheres, those who legitimately exercise power receive their authority from God through Christ via his word. The last qualification is important. These institutions do not have direct access to God for their power and authority. This authority comes ultimately from God, of course, but it is mediated through Christ via his law, the Bible. Even the kings of Israel and the Hebrew theocracy were admonished to study the law so that they might do justice according to God's word. They were to look to God's law for their wisdom in executing justice, not to personal divine revelations from the Lord. Deuteronomy 17, 18-20 Such words came from God to the prophets, not to the kings, and kings were expected to listen to the words of the prophets, but they were required to know the law of God and to test all prophetic claims against it, since even the prophets were under the rule of God's law. See Deuteronomy 13, 1-6. Again, this demonstrates a division and separation of powers so that no one person possessed total power and authority. The Bible does not support the doctrine of the divine right of kings, or its modern equivalent, the absolute right of elected governments with, quote, popular, unquote, mandates. In fact, the Bible contradicts this doctrine in the most forthright way. Authority, even the authority of the state and the church, is always limited and defined by God's law. Each sphere, therefore, receives an authority from God through Christ via his word. Each has a limited function. The state does not raise children and must not meddle with the family's legitimate role and authority in this sphere. Neither does the church execute public justice, though, of course, it does have a duty to proclaim the word of God, which addresses the sphere of public justice. The church, therefore, has a role in calling the state and the family to obey the word of God 
and in teaching God's law to those who hold office in the state and to members of families. But the church does not execute public justice on evildoers. She proclaims the word of God and also demonstrates God's mercy in her care for the sick, for orphans and widows, etc., secondary welfare functions. The family raises children and provides for the welfare and education of its members, primary welfare functions, not the state. Along with a limited role in society, each sphere receives an authority appropriate to it. This authority is limited in its nature by the function of the particular institution to which it is granted. All these institutions or spheres must function according to God's word. The authority they exercise is not autonomous or sovereign. It is the authority of God delegated to each sphere via his word, and therefore each sphere is entirely dependent upon God's word for its legitimacy. Each sphere derives its functions and authority from God's word. For any one of these spheres or institutions to claim a total authority, a total sovereignty, so that it sets itself up above the others and seeks to control them, as modern secular states do, is an act of rebellion against Christ, to whom they owe an absolute obedience, and an attempt to usurp his unique office as the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been committed by God the Father. All who do this are setting themselves up as idols, rivals to the Lord Jesus Christ. States that behave in this way will perish, as the scriptures tell us, Psalm 2. Besides these three institutions or spheres, there is a fourth sphere. This is the sphere of the individual and individual liberty. This is the sphere where the other spheres or institutions have no authority. Not only does no individual institution control the whole of society, neither do all of these institutions together control the whole of society. Where the authority of family, church and states ceases, there is individual liberty. This sphere of individual liberty is a very extensive one. Neither the family, the church nor the state are responsible individually or together for enforcing the whole of God's law. Much of God's law requires personal self-government and falls into the sphere of individual responsibility. Each individual sphere operates on the other spheres only in accordance with its God-given function. A crime committed in or by the church is investigated by the state, not the church, but the state does not thereby interfere with the church's legitimate freedom. If the church refuses to let the state investigate crimes committed by the church, she interferes with the proper functioning of the state. Likewise, the state has a duty to investigate crimes committed by family members, but it does not have the right to interfere with the rule and legitimate authority of the family or tell the family how to organise its affairs. This view of social organisation is based on the doctrine of sphere sovereignty, which is associated with Abraham Kuyper and the Dutch neo-Calvinist school of thought that flourished in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries in Holland under his leadership. But we must not think of these spheres as being sovereign in themselves. Rather, 
they are recipients of the sovereignty of God, as this is delegated to and limited for each specific institution. Kuiper systematically set down this doctrine in a series of lectures given at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1898, which were published as Lectures on Calvinism. This view, however, is a systematic statement of biblical principles. A few points of clarification are needed at this point. First, although this model of social order is usually identified by the term sphere sovereignty, it has been referred to as a form of pluralism and also as a form of political pluralism since it proposes a plurality of governments in society, each relating to different social spheres, none of which derives its legitimacy or authority from any of the other forms of social government and none of which takes precedence over the others. The only person to possess sovereignty is Christ himself, who delegates his sovereignty in a restricted form only to specific and limited spheres. This model, and the pluralistic terminology sometimes associated with it, must not be confused with the modern concept of principled pluralism espoused by some Christian thinkers, which is a different notion altogether in which the state is understood to be a religiously neutral institution that guarantees civil liberty and equality for all religions, thereby creating a multicultural society. This latter notion is really no different from the modern secular humanist concept of the state and the complete antithesis of the idea of the state set forth by Abraham Kuyper and the school of thought associated with his name which denies the possibility of religious neutrality in any sphere of life, including the political sphere. The terminology of political pluralism was used in the early 20th century by political theorists to describe the alternative to political monism. However, the debate between political pluralism and political monism has now been eclipsed by the triumph of the modern monist state and the general acceptance of its claim to complete sovereignty. The terminology of pluralism is now associated with the modern concept of multiculturalism and a religiously neutral state. Old terms have been given new meanings, and unfortunately it seems that this has led to confusion over Kuiper's political views among some Christians seeking to justify modern pluralistic ideals. It has been claimed that the modern, quote, Christian, end quote, notion of principled pluralism has its origin in Kuiper's political ideals. This claim seems to be based on an inadequate understanding of Kuiper's thought and ignorance of the nature of the debate regarding monist and pluralist political ideas in the early 20th century. Kuiper died in 1920. A careful reading of Kuiper's works that have been translated into English shows this to be a completely mistaken idea. In Kuiper's model of social order, sphere sovereignty, the state, no less than the church and all other institutions, is under obligation to honour God and submit obediently to his ordinances. In his Lectures on Calvinism, Kuiper stated, quote, The magistrates are and remain God's servants. They have to recognise God as supreme ruler from whom they derive their power. They have to serve God by ruling the people according to his ordinances. They have to restrain blasphemy, 
where it directly assumes the character of an affront to the divine majesty, and God's supremacy is to be recognised by confessing his name in the Constitution as the source of all political power, by maintaining the Sabbath, by proclaiming days of prayer and thanksgiving, and by invoking his divine blessing. Therefore, in order that they may govern according to his holy ordinances, every magistrate is duty-bound to investigate the rights of God, both in the natural life and in his word, not to subject himself to the decision of any church, but in order that he himself may catch the light which he needs for the knowledge of the divine will. End quote. Second, according to Abram Kuyper, quote, The highest duty of the civil government remains, therefore, unchangeably that of justice, and in the second place, it has to care for the people as a unit, partly at home, in order that its unity may grow ever deeper and may not be disturbed, and partly abroad, lest the national existence suffer harm. End quote. I agree with this secondary role of civil government only insofar as it is pursued in order to maintain public justice, the primary role of civil government. It is not clear that Kuiper so restricted this secondary role of the state. Kuiper goes on to assert that the state possesses the right and duty, quote, whenever different spheres clash, to compel mutual regard for the boundary lines of each, end quote. He also speaks of the state as the, quote, sphere of spheres, which encircles the whole extent of human life, end quote. This goes beyond what can be argued on the basis of Scripture, in my opinion. The Bible does not assign such a role to the state, but gives it a simple role of maintaining public justice. Of course, in many cases, indeed probably in the vast majority of cases, the maintenance of public justice, looked at from the perspective of sphere sovereignty, is precisely just such a matter of enforcing the boundary lines of each sphere. That is, the enforcement of public justice in such cases results in the preservation of the sphere's legitimate boundary lines. But to assign this effect of the administration of public justice to the state as its proper purpose is a different matter. Not all cases in which the boundary lines between the spheres are comprised necessitate state involvement. Only those cases in which crimes are committed fall within the jurisdiction of the state. Even in some cases involving principles of justice, the state may be powerless to act, since its remit does not extend to all cases of injustice. The Bible limits the jurisdiction of the state more strictly than this. The magistrate's jurisdiction relates to crime, that is, acts of injustice for which judicial penalties are prescribed. Consequently, although I use the basic Kuyperian paradigm of sphere sovereignty, I think it needs to be subjected to rigorous definition according to biblical criteria and modified when necessary. Not all sins are crimes. In other words, not all immoral actions of men against other men fall within the jurisdiction of the state. For this reason, I define the role of the magistrate or state not simply as a ministry of justice, but as the ministry of public justice, that is, cases of injustice to which civil penalties are attached. Issues of public justice for which the magistrate is obligated to provide a remedy constitute, therefore, a more limited category within the wider sphere of justice.
the failure to observe this distinction will result, and has resulted, in a social ethic of, quote, rights, end quote, that has serious consequences for the legal system. Positive discrimination laws are a good example. Undoubtedly, from a Christian point of view, racial discrimination in the labour market is immoral and therefore unjust. But it would be difficult to justify positive discrimination laws biblically. In fact, such laws can only operate by distorting public justice, that is, by creating a form of legally enforced racial discrimination, the very injustice that such legislation is intended to remedy. This kind of racial discrimination is usually, but misleadingly, referred to as, quote, positive discrimination, end quote. The same is true of gender discrimination laws. To take another example, a father may unjustly disinherit his children, but the magistrate is powerless to rectify this injustice under God's law. Such disinheritance may be reprehensible morally, but this in itself does not justify the magistrates taking action against the father. Only God's word can legitimately empower the magistrate to act. The definition of the state as an institution that must, quote, compel mutual regard for the boundary lines of each, unquote, sphere, opens the door for the state to act precisely in such a way that may compromise the concept of sphere sovereignty by giving the state a role that exceeds its biblically defined boundaries. It has been pointed out that, quote, Kuiper did not develop clear criteria for determining when intervention into the economy was necessary or permissible. Consequently, some contemporary Kuiperians advocate large-scale state intervention in order to defend those who cannot care for themselves, despite the fact that Kuiper emphasised the first defence and cultivation of such persons must be undertaken by both the institutional church and individual Christians acting within society. End quote. It should be remembered, however, that Kuiper was critical of such intervention in the economy by the state. Writing on the jurisdiction of the government, he stated, quote, Or do the authorities overstep their bounds when they create labour or reduce competition, raise wages or shorten the workweek, and in general support manual labour by making it available only under such conditions that ensure the manual labourer is also respected as a human being? We believe it beyond doubt that the government does not have this right, at least not in the absolute sense. State and society are not identical. The government is not the only sovereign in the country. Sovereignty exists in distinct spheres, and in each of these smaller circles, this sovereignty is bound to primordial arrangements or ordinances that have been created not by the government but by the creator of heaven and earth. Only in one instance can these sovereign entities tolerate, or even demand, government intervention. When two or more of these spheres collide at their common borders, and a great imbalance between their respective powers makes it likely that the more powerful entity would suffer from hypertrophy and the other would be inequitably suppressed. To take an example, the point of contact between the sphere of capital and the sphere of manual labour is always a contract, either formally drawn or presupposed, because the authorities are involved in court cases about contracts, this is the formal point that lies within the reach of government. End quote. This clearly demonstrates Kuiper's opposition to socialist economic planning, contrary to the misinformed claim that he was a socialist. 
There is, nonetheless, an ambiguity in Kuiper's definition of the state as the, quote, sphere of spheres, which encircles the whole extent of human life, end quote. This is why I do not think that, in every respect, Kuiper himself fully worked out the implications of his concept of sphere sovereignty. Nevertheless, the sphere sovereignty paradigm is a good one that needs to be developed, refined, and applied consistently. Section 3. The Christian Doctrine of the State In this essay, we shall be looking specifically at the institution of the state, that is, the civil magistrate, and its sphere of authority. What does the Bible tell us about the role and authority of the state or civil magistrate? First, the state, civil magistrate in the Bible, is defined as the administration of public justice. Kings and rulers are charged by God's law with the task of judgment, that is, doing justice, punishing crime, Romans 13.1-6. In pursuit of this office, the state has a duty to protect those under its authority from crimes committed within the nation by members of the society over which it exercises a God-ordained rule in the political sphere, and also from crimes committed against those under its protection or against the nation as a whole by individuals outside the nation and by foreign organisations and nations, and where such crime has been committed, it has a duty to bring to justice and punish those who have committed the crime. This definition of the state includes the executive, legislative, judicial, diplomatic, military and law enforcement agencies necessary for the state to carry out its task properly. In doing this, however, the state must act according to law at all times, and the law under which it must act must be framed according to the Christian principle of the rule of law. The Christian doctrine of the rule of law is that all man-made law should conform to the higher law of God, and this basic principle was, for centuries, a principle of both English common law and equity. This principle is clearly stated in the following two propositions from Doctor and Student, a legal treatise by Christopher Saint-Germain, published in 1523, Latin, and 1531, in English, quote, When the law eternal or the will of God is known to his creatures reasonable by the light of natural understanding or by the light of natural reason, that is called the law of reason. And when it is showed of heavenly revelation, then it is called the law of God. And when it is showed unto him by order of a prince or of any other secondary governor that hath power to set laws upon his subject, then it is called the law of man, though originally it be made of God. End quote. 2. Quote, For if any law made of men bind any person to anything that is against the said laws, the law of reason or the law of God, it is no law but a corruption and manifest error. End quote. This definition of the state as a ministry of public justice is based on biblical principles, that is, it is a systematic statement based on the functions of rulers as described in Scripture. This is evident if we look at the history of the development of the state throughout the Bible. Before the fall, of course, there was no state, since there was no sin. An ideal world in which there were no sin would not require a state. The function of the state is a negative one, to restrain certain kinds of evil and to bring to justice 
those who commit such evil acts. We must reject, therefore, the teaching of Thomas Aquinas regarding the natural origin of the state and its validation by means of an appeal to natural law. Speaking of Aquinas's political theology, APD Entreve says that, quote, If political institutions are an aspect of, quote, natural, unquote, morality, this means that the justification of the state and the ground of political obligation must be sought in the very nature of man. This is precisely the leading idea which St. Thomas derives from Aristotle. End quote. Dantreve goes on to say that for Aquinas, quote, Man is a political animal because he is a social being. This means that the state must have its roots in social experience, that it cannot be, or cannot be solely, the creation of human will. The state is not a work of art, but a historical product. It is the highest expression of human fellowship. All that pertains to that fellowship is natural to man. End quote. Furthermore, according to Joseph Leckler, quote, Basing itself upon Aristotle's politics, on which he had written a commentary, St. Thomas Aquinas pointed out that, because of its purely human and natural origin, the governments of pagan kings remained, even after the advent of Christ, perfectly lawful. End quote. Consequently, Aquinas taught that, quote, Infidelity is not in itself incompatible with political power, since the latter owes its origin to the law of nations, which is a human law. The distinction between the faithful and infidels, which arises from divine law, does not automatically cancel human law. End quote. However, this conflicts with Scripture, specifically Romans 13.1-6, which teaches that all authority is derived from God and that rulers are servants of God. They have an absolute obligation, therefore, to bow the knee to Christ and submit to his law. Psalm 2, 10-12 Furthermore, the state is not a natural institution for mankind, but rather an institution established by divine revelation as a result of man's fall into sin. Quote, the fall has given rise to an historical situation so threatening, says Ethelbert Stauffer, as to call for emergency measures to prevent man's world from being swamped by the powers of destruction. The emergency measures have been taken in the establishment of the civil power, for, according to the New Testament, the civil power is the divinely ordained means for the due ordering of life in a world where chaos is constantly threatening. End quote. Since man was created good, sin was not part of the original, that is, the natural order of creation. The state is, therefore, an institution of God's common grace the purpose of which is to restrain and mitigate specific evil consequences of the unnatural condition in which man now lives as a result of original sin. It is entirely incorrect, from the biblical perspective, to see the state as part of the natural order of things, indeed, as that in which man realises his true end, as Plato and Aristotle had conceived it. Aquinas allowed himself to be led astray at this point, and many others, by his idolatry of pagan philosophy, Aristotle, with which he attempted to reconcile the doctrines of the Christian faith. One of the consequences of Aquinas' compromise with the pagan philosophy of Aristotle was an idolatrous 
and tyrannical doctrine of the state, according to E.L. Hebden-Taylor, quote, This Thomist attempt to accommodate Aristotle's theory that social institutions and political life are natural and therefore just, with the Christian teaching that they are the result of human sinfulness, may be seen in Thomas's attempt to justify existing inequalities amongst men. According to Augustine, God had made the rational man to be the master of animals, not of his fellow men, thus showing by visible signs what is the proper order of nature and what are the consequences of sin. Aquinas resolves the contradiction between these two opposing points of view in typical scholastic fashion. He admits that, had men remained in the state of innocence, the more jarring inequalities between them, such as the distinction between masters and slaves, would not have existed. Yet, he claims, even in the state of innocence, the fundamental difference between man and man would have been apparent for, as Aristotle points out, men are not equal but unequal. Everything is clear if we distinguish between two different sorts of subjection. Slavery, the subjectio servilis, in which man is degraded as a tool, is contrary to nature and can therefore be explained as a consequence of sin. But political relationship, the subjectio civilis of man to man, which is necessary for the common good, is not a consequence of sin, for it is founded upon the very nature of man. Authority and obedience would still have been required, even if the state of innocence had been preserved, because, as Aristotle said, man is a social and political animal. Society would not be possible without those who are more wise and righteous, having command over the rest. Thus does Aquinas get over the difficulty posited by sin, confining it to narrow limits, merely to explain such hardships of social life as serfdom and the harsh character of a penal law with its attendant torture. Sin, for Thomas, can have no part in the rational justification of the state, because political obligation is inherent in man's nature. Man is unthinkable without the state because it is only in the state that he can fulfil himself. The state, as conceived by Aquinas, however, should be subject to the spiritual authority of the Pope. Aquinas taught that, The temporal power is subject to the spiritual as the body to the soul. Furthermore, according to Aquinas, the ministry of this kingdom, that is, the kingdom of Christ, SCP, is entrusted not to the rulers of this earth, but to priests, so that temporal affairs may remain distinct from those spiritual, and, in particular, it is delegated to the high priest, the successor of Peter and vicar of Christ, the Roman pontiff, to whom all kings in Christendom should be subject, as to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For those who are concerned with the subordinate ends of life must be subject to him who is concerned with the supreme end and be directed by his command. And under Christ's law, kings must be subject to priests. End quote. As a result of the influence of this medieval Roman Catholic dogma, all authority, both spiritual and temporal, was believed ultimately to be concentrated into the hands of the papacy. Quote, St. Thomas, says APD Entreve, quote, lays down with uncompromising clearness the principles which underlie 
the medieval conception of the state. End quote. J. M. Spear summarized the problem with this syncretization of the Christian faith with pagan political philosophy in the following way. Quote, the universalistic ideal of Plato and Aristotle is well known. They conceived of the state as a whole which includes all other societal relationships as dependent parts in need of the whole in order to be complete. Society is thus thought of as a relation between a whole to its parts. The individual is preceded by the state. The state is the highest good and everything must serve it. The state has a metaphysical basis. It rests upon the rational, essential nature of man who is a social being. This ancient universalistic conception of the state lacks any circumscription of structure. The state is a great Moloch. Everything else is sacrificed to it. This view overlooks the fact that the state is not a thing of nature. The state is grounded in the historical aspect. The ancient view was generally retained and modified in the Middle Ages. It was accommodated to Christian thought by means of the schema of nature and grace. The state was considered to be the highest relationship within the sphere of nature, and the church was considered the highest relationship in the sphere of grace. The church was above the state, and the latter must serve the former. A church state rather than a state church was considered ideal. The state ruled by the grace of papal authority. End quote. Consequently, as E. L. Hebden Taylor points out, quote, the medieval pontiffs of the Church of Rome may thus claim the distinction of having revived those pagan conceptions of oriental despotic monarchy which the German barbarians supposed they had disposed of once and for all when they overthrew the Roman Caesars. In the papal program for supremacy and the fullness of power, we may therefore rightly detect the seed thoughts of the modern pagan totalitarian state. Totalitarian communism thus merely marks the final stage in the process of the secularization of the medieval papal program to bring in utopia by brute force. In both its religious and political forms, individual freedom is destroyed. End quote. From the biblical perspective, however, the state is not a natural part of the created order. It is, therefore, not natural to the life of man. It is, rather, an institution established by divine mandate to deal with certain of the social consequences of man's fall into sin, namely, the administration of public justice. Abraham Kuyper stated the biblical doctrine clearly, quote, Every state formation, every assertion of the power of the magistrate, every mechanical means of compelling order and of guaranteeing a safe course of life is therefore always something unnatural, something against which the deeper aspirations of our nature rebel, and which, on this very account, may become the source both of a dreadful abuse of power on the part of those who exercise it, and of a contumacious revolt on the part of the multitude. Thus originated the battle of the ages between authority and liberty. And in this battle it was the very innate thirst for liberty which proved itself the God-ordained means to bridle the authority wheresoever it degenerated into despotism. And thus, all true conception of the nature of the state and of the assumption of authority by the magistrate, and on the other hand, 
or true conception of the right and duty of the people to defend liberty, depends on what Calvinism has here placed in the foreground as the primordial truth that God has instituted the magistrate by reason of sin. End quote. The doctrine of the state's hand of natural law espoused by Aquinas was syncretistic, a deliberate conflation of Christianity with paganism, as represented by Aristotle. There is no sphere of natural law, that is, religiously neutral law, beyond the jurisdiction of God in Christ to which rulers, whether Christian or pagan, can appeal to justify their disobedience to God. In the pursuit of their duty to rule, they owe an absolute obedience to God's law. Quote, True justice, said Augustine, has no existence save in that republic whose founder and ruler is Christ. End quote. Again, Abraham Kuyper stated the biblical principle clearly. Quote, Authority over men cannot arise from men, just as little from a majority over against a minority, for history shows, almost on every page, not very often, the minority was right. And thus to the first Calvinist thesis, that sin alone has necessitated the institution of government, the second and no less momentous thesis is added that all authority of governments on earth originates from the sovereignty of God alone. End quote. Without this, rulers are no better than bands of robbers, which is precisely what, as a consequence of their extreme taxation policies, modern British governments increasingly resemble. The famous passage from Augustine sums the matter up poignantly. Quote, Justice being taken away then, what are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? The band itself is made up of men. It is ruled by the authority of a prince. It is knit together by the pact of the confederacy. The booty is divided by the law agreed on. If, by the admittance of abandoned men, this evil increases to such a degree that it holds places, fixes abodes, takes possession of cities, and subdues peoples, it assumes more plainly the name of a kingdom, because the reality is now manifestly conferred on it, not by the removal of covetousness, but by the addition of impunity. Indeed, that was an apt and true reply which was given to Alexander the Great, by a pirate who had been seized. For, when that king had asked the man what he meant by keeping hostile possession of the sea, he answered with bold pride, What thou meanest by seizing the whole earth, but because I do it with a petty ship, I am called a robber, whilst thou who dost it with a great fleet art styled emperor. End quote, end quote. It seems also, however, that there was no state after the fall and prior to the flood, even though sin had entered into the human race. In the cases of Cain and Lamech, Genesis 4.15 and 23-24, there was no state to bring them to justice for their crimes, and Scripture seems to suggest that no one was authorized to do this, since we are told that, quote, The Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him, end quote. Verse 15. It seems, further, that Lamech, recognizing this, used it as a precedent for his denial that anyone should bring him to justice for his crimes. 
It is therefore reasonable to conjecture that it was just this absence of institutional restraint exercised by society on human sin that led to the dire state of wickedness that preceded the flood. God intervened in this situation and judged the antediluvian world, saving only Noah and his family in the process. In the covenant that God then established with Noah and all his posterity, that is, the whole of humanity to the end of time, God promised never to judge the whole world in this way again, but instead required man himself to put to death those who commit murder. Certainly, the death penalty is established for the first time in the covenant made with Noah after the flood, Genesis 9, 5 and 6. This seems to be, therefore, the beginning of the institution of the state, that is, the administration of public justice by society itself. It is to be noted that the rationale for this, the reason for the establishing of the state, was not welfare, education, or the equal distribution of wealth in society, but quite simply the restraint of crime and the punishment of criminals, that is, the administration of public justice, judgment. Again we see in this the divine origin of the office of the magistrate, that is, the state. According to Roman Catholic theologian Joseph Leckler, quote, The view that the state is of purely secular and natural origin does not present any difficulty from the point of view of Catholic doctrine, end quote. But according to scripture, the state does not have a secular or natural origin. Its origin is in the divine revelation given to Noah after the flood. Genesis 9, 1-17 The state is a divinely ordained institution, not the product of the natural life of mankind, whether in the form of a social contract or as a natural development of the family, clan or tribe. Its function is to deal with specific social consequences of man's fall into sin. It was instituted by divine revelation to replace the direct execution of God's wrath upon mankind. In other words, its function is to mediate the judgment of God on earth against specific kinds of sin. It must act, therefore, in all things according to God's law. Rebellion against God and the complete abandonment of God's law by the state constitutes the failure of the state's divine vocation and, consequently, the failure of the divinely ordained mediating institution between mankind and the direct wrath of God upon society. A total breakdown in the mediation of divine justice in the work of the state, therefore, must always herald the most fearful and disastrous of consequences for society, since, at this point, the only way that justice can be done is by means of God's wrath being revealed directly from heaven against the unrighteousness, that is, the injustice, of men, Romans 1, 19-32. This same principle regarding the state's divine vocation as the minister of God's wrath, God's justice, is evident as we follow the historical development of the state as it is given in the biblical record. In the Mosaic period, judges were appointed to deal with matters of justice, that is, judgment, among the people, Exodus 18, 13-27, Deuteronomy 1, 13-17, 16, 18-20 When kings are anointed to lead the people, they are charged with the task of doing justice, that is, judgment. 1 Samuel 8, 4 and 5, 2 Samuel 8, 15, 1 Kings 3, 17-12, 2 Chronicles 19, 5-11, Psalm 71, 1 and 2, 82, 1-4, 
Isaiah 1, 10 and 17. This is in sharp contrast to the kings of early Greco-Roman culture, where the king was a sacral ruler, that is, a high priest, whose sacred vocation was to ensure that their religious rites were duly observed. By contrast, the Hebrew social order maintained a separation of powers between the priesthood and the monarchy. The Hebrew theocracy was not a hierocracy, and this was in contrast to nearly all of ancient culture. We owe our modern separation of the distinctive functions and powers of church and state to this biblical model of government. After the Babylonian captivity, when the people returned to the land of Israel, their rulers were again charged with making sure that justice was done and that judgment was made according to God's law. Ezra 7, 25 and 26 The clearest and fullest statement of this principle, however, is given by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 1-7. Quote, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. This is the locus classicus of the Christian doctrine of the state. Here we are told that the magistrate, that is, rulers, the state, is a minister of God to exercise justice, God's wrath, verse 4, upon those who do evil. It is for this purpose, says Paul, that the state bears the sword, that is, is authorised by God's law, to use the power of coercion up to and including the death sentence. Paul drives his argument home by repeating himself, quote, For this cause, that is the administration of public justice, pay ye tribute, for they, that is rulers, are God's ministers attending continually on this very thing, defines the purpose of the state, namely the punishment of evildoers. According to Blass and de Brunner's, a Greek grammar of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, the term translated as this very thing in the authorised version means, quote, just this and nothing else, end quote. This defines and severely limits the role of the state. It is not the duty of the state or magistrate to act as a ministry of welfare, education, trade and industry, health care, transport, etc. The sole duty of the state is the administration of public justice. Quote, Just this and nothing else. End quote. It could not be clearer. When the state exceeds the boundaries of its God-given role and authority, 
and takes upon itself functions for which God has ordained other forms of governments, for example the family, which has the duty to provide welfare and education for its members, it denies men their true liberty under God. In doing so, it becomes a tyrant. Second, the state is to execute justice, that is, judgment, in terms of God's law. The magistrate is the, quote, servant of God, end quote, a, quote, minister of God, end quote. Paul tells us, verse 4, he is a, quote, revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil, end quote. Whose wrath is this? The magistrate's own? <laughs> of course not. The magistrate is one who executes God's wrath upon evildoers as God's servant. The context of the passage is not some nebulous idea of natural law. The magistrate is not there to execute the will of the people or the will of the majority of the people. The magistrate is the minister of God, the one who applies the judgment of God as revealed in his law to those who do evil. He is accountable to God and must execute judgment according to God's will. Deuteronomy 17, 18-20 Third, in the pursuance of its legitimate function as a ministry of public justice, the state has the right to collect taxes. But again, it is clear from what Paul says in Romans 13, 6 that the taxes collected may be used only for the purpose of enabling the state to perform its divinely ordained function as a ministry of public justice. Quote, for this cause pay ye tribute, end quote, says Paul, that is, the administration of public justice. The state is not authorized by God's word to collect taxes for the purpose of redistributing wealth within society or for providing welfare, educational or other services unconnected with its duty to administer public justice. The collection of taxes by the state is legitimized by scripture, but only for this specific purpose. For the state to collect taxes for the purposes that lie outside this limited rule is a transgression of the Eighth Commandment, quote, Thou shalt not steal, end quote, which the state is charged by God's word with enforcing. In collecting taxes for other purposes, the state acts outside its God-given authority. The fact that it does have a God-given role and that in the discharge of this role it has divine authority to collect taxes for this purpose does not justify the collection of taxes for anything else. Paul offers no support or warrant in this passage of scripture to governments that act outside their God-given role as ministers of public justice. Fourth, the Bible also restricts the state's ability to amass the kind of power and wealth necessary to establish totalitarian government, Deuteronomy 17, 16 and 17. It is also clear from 1 Kings 21, 1-24, the case of Naboth's vineyard, compare Leviticus 25, 23-28, Ezekiel 46, 18, Numbers 36, 7, that the state has no right of eminent domain, that is, sovereignty over all land in the nation with the right of expropriation, for example, compulsory purchase, which was the basis of medieval feudalism and still remains a basic feature of modern secular humanist and especially socialist political ideology. It is clear from this that the state, that is, the civil governments of the land, is severely restricted in its functions and powers and may not encroach 
on the legitimate functions of other God-ordained institutions and governments, family, church, and individual, without rebelling against God and ultimately bringing itself under his judgment. Section 4. Reforming the Modern State Unfortunately, this is precisely what has happened in the modern world. The Christian concept of a limited state with a specific function, as one form of government among others, is not a widely accepted political ideal. Even among those who regard themselves as politically conservative, the state is usually deemed to have a much wider function than that of impartially administering public justice. Christians must resist this and seek to reform society. The Great Commission demands the discipling of the whole nation, and this includes, though is by no means limited to, the function of the state. Here we face a problem, particularly in Britain, although I suspect this problem is more widespread. And it is this, that very often Christians, seeing that society is turning away from God and being re-paganized, have lobbied governments to reform society by using the machinery of the state to correct the ills they see around them. The problem is that in requiring the state to act in this way, they have lent credibility to the apostate state's claims of total sovereignty, that is, supreme and comprehensive authority over society, and have therefore helped to promote an idolatrous political ideal. An example here will help. The primary responsibility for education lies with the family, but the state has usurped the role of the family and now provides state education services funded by taxation, at least for most families. This restricts the freedom of the family to provide for itself and forces it into dependence on the state. Even though private education is still available, most families cannot afford it because of the high taxes they have to pay which include taxes that are levied to fund state education. Most families cannot easily afford to pay twice for the education of their children. Because of this situation, homeschooling is the only viable option for most Christian families in Britain. Therefore, private schooling, that is, sending children to public schools, tends to be restricted to the wealthier members of society. The same happens in other spheres, for example welfare and health care. Most individuals and families are taxed so heavily to pay for state welfare that their ability to fund private Christian alternatives is severely restricted. The greater part of society is therefore forced into some form of state dependence in terms of health care and welfare. Lobbying government to establish and fund Christian schools or to reform the current system to make it more Christian will not overcome this basic problem. Such reform would not be successful anyway. It has been tried repeatedly in Britain and has not yet worked. The whole system is now aggressively secular humanist in its philosophy and has no time for Christianity anyway. And even if it were successful, it would still leave most people dependent upon the state. The only answer to this situation that is consistent with a Christian view of social order is for the government to privatise the whole of the education and welfare systems. This would then put these social services back into their proper spheres of operation, the family, the church and the individual, leaving the state free to pursue the administration of public justice in a more biblical and rational way.
What Christians should not be doing, therefore, is lobbying governments to provide services such as education according to Christian criteria, that is, Christian schools. That is not the function of the state. If Christians are to engage in lobbying, they should be lobbying government to restrict itself to pursuing the role that God has assigned to it in Scripture and limiting its collection of taxes to this specific role. This would vastly reduce the tax burden on everyone in society, enabling families to make provision for themselves and also enabling them to support Christian charities and churches in making provision for the less fortunate in society, that is, in providing a Christian safety net for the poor. This will, of course, demand a great deal of sacrifice from Christians. But this is what Christ has called us to. We are to pick up our cross and follow Christ. And our commission is to disciple the nation, to bring it under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this includes all the social functions of the various institutions that make up the nation. Unless Christians are willing and prepared to start providing Christian alternatives in these spheres of life, the state will not be reduced in size and brought into line with its proper function as defined by Scripture, and we shall continue to live as slaves of the modern secular state. Reforming the state is only one part of our task. Society consists of more than the state, and unless we are prepared to fulfill our responsibilities as families and churches for ourselves, the state will continue to grow in size, will continue to limit our freedom, we shall continue to pay ever more taxes. Requiring the state to fulfill our responsibilities for us will not produce a Christian society. It will merely continue to lend credibility to an already idolatrous conception of the state under the rule of which society has become dysfunctional and is increasingly lurching towards disintegration. There is an important role for the state, but it is limited, and it must conform to the Christian ideals set forth in Scripture. Only then will the church, the family, and the individual be free and be able to make their proper Christian contribution to society. The modern state plays God much of the time, and Christians have become complicit in this because they have not sought to pursue a rigorous Christian ideal of social order. But, in neglecting this, they have failed to see that they have neglected the Great Commission and that the inevitable effect of this has been the repaganization of society. Along with this, our freedom to preach the gospel and to live the Christian life in its fullness has been curtailed. Section 5. Conclusion In the correct ordering of society, the function of the state is negative. Its purpose is to restrain crime and punish criminals according to the principles of justice set forth in Scripture. In doing this, the state creates a climate in which the family, the church and the individual can be free to develop their vocations positively according to God's word to the glory of God and the benefit of society. The Christian view of the state, therefore, requires a recognition of the proper functions of each of the social spheres and respect for their legitimate authority. Reform of the modern state according to biblical principles requires, first, limitation of the state's activity to its God-ordained function 
as a Ministry of Public Justice, and second, that these spheres or institutions whose roles have been usurped by the state should stop abdicating their responsibilities to the state and start fulfilling their proper functions in society in obedience to God's word. There is only one way that this can be achieved. Christians must constitute themselves as a true society, a prophetic social order that functions across the whole spectrum of human society and manifests the kingdom of God in its life, thereby providing a true model of society for the world. This kind of reform will mean a significant upheaval in the way Christians think and live. This will involve a great deal of sacrifice as Christians begin making those changes to their family and church lives that God's word requires. But without this sacrifice of obedience, neither our own nation nor the world as a whole will be one for Christ. Excursus, Section 1 Terms used for tax in the New Testament The term Paul uses for tax in Romans 13, 6 and 7 are foros, tribute, and telos, tax. Some commentators understand the distinction between these words to refer to direct and indirect taxes. The word translated tribute in the authorised version, foros, means, quote, that which is brought in by way of payment, tribute, properly payments made by subjects to a ruling state and by islanders and other Greeks to Athens, end quote. According to Cattell's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, however, quote, the word can sometimes be used for more general levies, services or payments, including those which strictly fall under the concept of telai, that is, taxes, see below. According to Leon Morris, quote, Paul is probably using the word in a general sense for any kind of tax, but his choice of the word is interesting, end quote. This opinion is confirmed by the fact that the New Testament seems to use the words foros, telos, and kinsos, kinsos means census, assessment, tax, as synonyms, see Matthew 17.25, Mark 12.14, Luke 20.22. The word translated custom, telos, in the authorised version, means, quote, that which is paid for state purposes, a toll, tax, duty, end quote. In his list of New Testament synonyms, G.R. Berry states that, quote, foros indicates a direct tax which was levied annually on houses, lands and persons and paid usually in produce. Telos is an indirect tax on merchandise which was collected at piers, harbours and gates of cities. It was similar to modern import duties. Kinsos, originally an enrolment of property and persons, came to mean a poll tax levied annually on individuals by the Roman government. End quote. The didrachma mentioned in Matthew 17.24 was a double drachma nearly equal in value to the Jewish half-shekel. According to Berry, this was the coin used to pay the annual temple tax levied by the religious leaders of Israel for the purpose of maintaining the temple. Section 2. The Terminology of the English Education System The terminology used to describe the English education system 
seems contradictory to people unfamiliar with its history. Before there were any state schools in England, private schools that received some form of state funding, no matter how limited, were referred to as public schools. This terminology continued, as did the limited state funding, after the subsequent development of the state education system. Public schools were for the wealthy and privileged, and still tend to be for the most part, since the fees charged are beyond the means of the majority of families. There was, however, prior to the development of the state system and running alongside the public school system, a well-developed and successful private education system that received no state funding, which provided for the majority of people, including the working classes, who could not afford the fees charged by the public schools. The schools that constituted this private system included charitable and church schools, but also many small private schools whose fees were within the financial means of the working classes. The standard of education provided to the working classes by these private schools in Victorian England prior to the 1870 Education Act has been shown to have been above the world average by late 20th century standards. Nevertheless, the myth that the working classes had no or very little access to education prior to the advent of state schooling has become one of the most sacred dogmas of the modern secular humanist establishment. Denis de Rougemont's naive statement that it took state schooling to make the invention of the printing press fully effective is as revealing of the religious dogmatism at the heart of the secular humanist establishment as it is factually incorrect. On the other hand, and giving the lie to de Rougemont's statement, there are today in the United Kingdom a number of charities that exist solely to help solve the growing illiteracy problem among schoolchildren. Yet there has never been a time when more public money and political effort were expended on the state education system than the present. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.